Hi everyone, we are Tara and Michelle. Welcome back to Books and Beyond. On this episode, we caught up with the veteran writer Arsha Sattar, who's India's greatest translator and who's known for translating the Ramayana. And you're going to be surprised with all her insights and anecdotes about the epic. And I always wanted to know how she started Sangam House, which is the most prestigious writing residency in India, and I really hope to make it there someday. We found out about that and much more on this episode. So here's our conversation. So welcome to Books and Beyond, Arshia. Today we have with us Arshia Sattar, who is one of India's most prestigious translators. She's a scholar of the classics, and we're going to be talking to her about her work, how she's translated Valmiki's Ramayana, and much more. Hi, Tara. Hi, Michelle. <laughs> Hi, Arshia. So a, a lesser-known fact is the last time I think I met Arshia. She remembers it, and I don't. But it was when I was really young, and she's a friend of my parents actually. So that's the last time we met, and I'm really happy to meet you yeah. again here today. Very auntie moment, darling. Do you remember? I saw you when you were so small. Like, no, auntie, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. So, Arsha, when was your first encounter with the Ramayana? Like, I remember mine. It was through TV shows, and even Tara discovered Ramayana like that. So, how was it for you? Well, if you ask my mother. um she'll say it's uh when i was uh 3 years old and we lived in madras and uh, we'd gone to gindi park and i was bitten by a monkey so she oh. claims that that was when the ramayana claimed me <laughs> um i remember that i remember being bitten by the monkey i remember having to take vaccinations and all after that but my other memory is my aya used to tell me ramayana stories at night um she was from um chamba valley um and she was you know she was she's like a sort of archetypal grandmother kind of person she was small she was round <laughs> um she was very cuddly and she used to tell me ramana stories and my first memory of fear actually is ravana yeah and i thought that he'd come and take me away you know just like he had abducted sita oh um, like the boogie man <laughs> yeah yeah very much very much so i was probably uh, we were in delhi then so i was probably 4 or 5 yeah um so it just always stayed with me somehow but i i um also it's true that my parents um my mother in particular um was constantly buying me books of myths and legends and you know fairy tales and folk tales from different parts of the world really so somehow this idea that it it's completely normal to read folk tales as much as you're reading in a blighton or whatever else you're reading as a child that that stayed with me and so ramayana just stayed in in my life really yeah and and since you read like you know folk tales from all over the world like yeah, we were just curious yeah. why did the ramayana stand out to you out of all hanuman hmm. yeah i mean we read he's your favorite character how can you resist him <laughs> i i you know if you ask people who is your favorite character in ramayana if they're being really honest they'll say hanuman right is that But, your favorite character I am honestly since I'm a Catholic and you know I've been just you know introduced to the concept it's a little difficult for me to pick favorites Come on come on <laughs> take a stab at it Misha Yeah I think I would say Sita like for me though <laughs> That <laughs> is really interesting to hear a young woman say Sita who's yeah. yours I think Sita as well actually Bapre okay well clearly I belong to a different generation where flying monkeys are more important than captive women you know And we also love charismatic yeah. we love your take on Sita how it's a feminist uh, yeah. view yeah, yeah it just it it changed our view yeah. it can be and I think that really is what it means to read the classics 
um, and for us, you know, these are not classics in the same way that we think of Greek and Latin classics, because these are living traditions, these are living texts, and of course, Rama is God. Um, so the only way we can keep them relevant and the only way we can sort of continue our engagement with these texts is to make them meaningful for us. And if we are 21st century women, then we have to find a Sita that speaks to us, not the Sita that spoke to our grandparents or like yourself, you're, you're Catholic, my family is Muslim. Um, how do we negotiate that distance as well? And I think it's when we extricate her from this excessively religious universe in which she's been placed, then she's meaningful to any one of us, you know? And I think that's very, very important. Because I don't know how you make a flying monkey. <laughs> I, you know, how do you relate to a flying monkey? That yeah. I don't know. But Sita, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of retellings of Sita are doing yes, that nowadays. Yes, yeah. yes. I have um, a, a slight concern, uh, you know, about uh, some of the retellings. I'm not, I'm not going to um, uh, take names, but Please I do. Oh God! No. <laughs> I have to continue to work in this business. Um, but I find that you know a lot of the uh, uh, men who are retelling Ramayana. I I think for them Sita is a bit of a fantasy character. You know, it's a projection. Um, you know, she's the warrior princess. She can do this. She can do that. She can kickbox. The um, perfect woman. The ideal she wife. She's the ideal 21st century woman. You know, she's got a gym body and like a, <laughs> I don't know, like a gym brain, you know. Um, so that I, I, I find that a little bit problematic. But I think I'm speaking again from a very um, old fashioned feminist perspective. You know, 20th century feminism, as you know, is very different from the feminism that you guys live and the feminisms that you endorse. And ours was much more conservative in that regard. And I'm very aware of the male gaze, you know, mm. when men construct female characters in anything. I, mm. I, I sort of look at them more carefully than... Oh, um, but, yeah. but what about retelling by women? Like the Palace of Illusions. Sure. Yeah, Palace Divakaruni, no? Yes. Chitra Banerjee. Mm, yeah, she's just that. Yeah. Did you read her Forest of Enchantment? I, I, yeah, I read both the, yeah. Palace of Illusions and yeah, Forest yeah, of Enchantments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also, um, uh, there's Kavita Kane and Parveen Saket. And you know, there's a lot of women also uh, writing Sita. And as you know, since, uh, since you've obviously read all these books, it's very different. You know, the Sita is written by men. And the Sita is written by women. Um, I think in, in women uh, writing Sita, Sita is leading. She's the driver, you know. And for men, the men construct her always as a companion to Rama, you know. And I mean, there, therein lies the patriarchy. Hmm. Like no identity yeah. of her own. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she's great, but she's still on his project. Right. right. You know, but when women write her, it's, she really has an inner life. and She's a star. She's yeah. a star and everything doesn't begin and end with Rama, you know, so, yeah. So coming back to, you know, your work. Um, <laughs> so we read, uh, you know, in your in your introduction to um, the translation yes. that you said that it's very daunting, you know, presenting a work to an audience mm. that is already so familiar with it. Yeah. So what gave you that confidence to just keep going and put it out there? You know. I was young. <laughs> I thought I could do everything. And, you know, honestly, if somebody now said translate Ramana, I would say, uh, no, thanks. But um, I had confidence for two or three very important reasons. One is um, I'd worked on Ramana for my PhD dissertation, which was on Hanuman, right? So, and so I felt I know this text. 
Uh, also, um, it came, the translation came to me as a commission. Penguin called we me. We read that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and said that, you know, why don't you do Ramayana? And I was like, okay. And, you know, this is really in the last century, right? so no email and all this. So I, um, I wrote a letter <laughs> to my teacher, Wendy, and said, do you think I can do this? Am I, am I capable of it? And she said, yes, of course you are, just do it. So that gave me confidence. And also I knew... And previous to Ramayana, uh, the test book was um, Katha Saritsagra, uh, which also I did for Penguin. And I really think it was a test and it, it they were very right to do that. And so when I translated Katha Saritsagra, I had so much fun. I just loved the act of translation, you know. So that gave me the confidence that I could do a big, long text. Um, you know, I and, could, and also you have engaged with it for a very long very time. We read like thirty yeah. years. God, yeah, man. <laughs> so yeah. We, we were wondering. It's coming how up on forty. Yeah. Right. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. Weird. Yeah, I, I, you know, honestly, when I was your age, and I thought, what am I going to be when I grow up? I didn't think I'd be spending forty years with the same story. <laughs> so what? So what were your ambitions when you were growing up? I, I wanted to be a writer. That's for sure. When I was a little girl, that's what I wanted to do. Um, then uh, somewhere in the middle, I got a wee bit distracted. I thought I wanted to um, study languages, um, which I suppose I kind of did with Sanskrit. And then by the time I was about 17 or 18, um, just when I started going to college here in Elphinstone, um, I so decided that I wanted a PhD. So I guess I should be very grateful because all of those three things have... Um, come together in my life and I've been living that life for 30 years. So. It just That's fell into great. place. Yeah. Yeah, would you, did, have, would you have, um, do you think you would have translated it if you had not been commissioned to? Would you have come to it I anyway? I would have been frightened. Um, uh, I, wow, that's an interesting question. I think um, probably I would have written the books anyway, Uttara, Lost Loves, all that. Uh, but of course I wouldn't have had, a, nobody would have taken me seriously if it had not been for the translation. So the translation in a strange way has yeah, defined the boundaries of my work. And every now and then I get really irritated, you know, because, you know, people ask me to do book reviews regularly, but only <laughs> mythology. Oh. Yeah. It's like, what do you think? I don't know how to read Jane Austen. I mean, come on, you know, obviously I know how to read and write. Those, those are my only skills in this big world. Mine so, too. Yeah. Yeah. So why can't I review um, Dan Brown? Whatever, you know, uh, but I don't. I'm constantly getting called to comment on mythologies and ancient texts, uh, which is fine. I, I enjoy it immensely, but sometimes I really like to write about something else. So are there other genres that you read and really Oh, like? I read all the time, uh, constantly. And again... I have this great good fortune that every year I'm on multiple literary Jury, juries. Yeah. yeah, so I'm reading all the new Indian stuff that comes out, all the first books, all the last books, or you know. Um, so I yeah. Uh, so actually, most of this jury business gets done by October or November, and it starts in June. So half the year I'm reading for work and we read that you read around 50 books in two months what to do so but <laughs> yeah. how do you do that I mean how do you read um, every book critically and what are some tips that you may have for other readers want who to read. yeah. want to read like that well um, you have to have a very comfortable physical space in which you read I think that's the most important I never um, thought of it like mm, that yeah, what is yours I have a couple of places um, I have a sort of 
you know, one of those old-fashioned cane chairs on my balcony. And I have a very beautiful balcony. I'm very lucky. There's um, there's a huge tree. So that's one of my reading places. That's a sort of daytime reading place. In Bangalore. In Bangalore, yeah. I'm also a smoker, but I don't smoke inside my own house. So that's my smoking and reading place. <laughs> I read very badly in bed. You know, all the things they tell you, don't read like this, or your pillows, da da da. you don't hold the don't book close. Don't read lying yeah. down. All that's rubbish, yeah, it's crap. I read like that um, um, with great pleasure. Uh, there's also, there's also a, 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 I read at my desk quite often. I have a nice desk. Um, and also it looks out onto the same balcony and the tree and all that. Do you mark out passages? And how do you keep all of those books in mind? I make notes. You make notes. Yeah. Yeah. I stopped writing in books. I used to do that a lot. Um, I don't anymore, not because of some like, oh, I've had some change of heart. Don't desecrate or nothing. I just don't do it. But I fold pages. You know, I, I fold at the top of a page. Yeah, I, I do. I do keep notes. And the, I, I like that because the the, the note, of the paper that you use actually becomes a, a bookmark, you know. So, um, yeah. So, uh, is this very similar to your translating process? So, we were wondering, you know, when you're translating the Ramayana, did yeah. you keep notes? How was your process like? Oh, man. Yeah. Well, one very big difference uh, when I was translating Ramayana was not 30 years ago. The book came out in uh, at the end of 96, I think, before you all were born. Wow. I was born in 1990. I made it. Uh, yeah. um, so those days, I used to obviously uh, translate by hand. And one of the things that was so exciting, um, I used to love it. I used to love the sight of my desk. Because on by my left hand side is this huge fat Monia Williams Sanskrit dictionary. Right? So then in front of you is the Sanskrit text of Ramayana, which is, you know, many, many volumes. Um, but you have one volume at a time on your desk. Then so in front of that is your notebook, right? Um, and I used to... Um, so you translate on one page, right? Um, and you leave a line between your own writing so that you can make notes in that line. And then the, the other side page, the left-hand side page, is completely blank. So then you make other notes there, so that, that now when I translate, it's much less romantic. Everything's online, you know. Uh, the dictionary is your talisman. It really, really is. So you have to have the dictionary next to you. Whether you open it or not is not the point. And when I was translating um, for Uttarakhanda, I did actually use um, a, a, a book, a, a hard copy of, of Ramayana. Um, but you don't need to do that anymore. So, for example, the the new book. Oh, what uh, is that? What's that called? What's it about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I should tell, tell you. Yes, yeah, it should be pre-publicity. Well, let me just tell you what I, um, how I translate for that. So, I needed to look at little bits of the Mahabharata for that. We were going to ask you about yeah. that. Yeah. Well, so we kind of predicted your trajectory. Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. So, what am I going to be doing ten years from now? Oh, fortune-telling ladies. Yeah. So that I just I just looked it up online. You know, I, I found, but still, I mean, I'm from a, from that generation where somebody, you don't actually trust completely everything that's online. I look it up in a text um, and then I find it online and then, then I translate. So, you know, I didn't have to pull out like six volumes of Mahabharata just to lose. It's very convenient. But the actual, um, the visual, the sort of visual memory of one's own desk is now so different, no, because there's just less on it. Um, uh, and but how reliable are these online sources 
for for the research. Sanskrit stuff is pretty good um, because since the eighties, um, oh, it's not the eighties, the nineties. In Japan, they've been digitizing the whole of Mahabharata critical edition and Ramayana critical edition. So the Sanskrit texts are as solid as any other Sanskrit texts will be. The translations, there are translations on the on the net as well. You have to be much more discerning with those because you just have to you have to trust your translator as you do with any. I mean, whether it's online or. Uh, in print, you just really have to trust your translators. So, Actually, I wanted to ask about that because you know uh, you also mentioned that when you were translating the Ramayana, there were obviously many aspects that yeah. went against your politics. Yeah. So, how how do you remain objective as a translator? How do you not put yourself in, or, or, and do you put yourself in? You, well, you know, I thought I thought I was completely invisible in my translation, and then you know. Um, my friend said, are you mad? It sounds exactly like you. And I was like, how can it sound like me? It's Valmiki. But since then, um, I've had to think a lot about process, really. because, And I think it's, it's, it's a good thing to think about process after you've done a couple of big works. Um, because if, if you start thinking about it before, you just get paralyzed. Um, also, I think that after you've done something, it becomes visible to you. It becomes manifest. What is this thing that I've done? And, like, and do you feel helpless like when you can't change some things in the book that you, know, yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. agree with? Yeah, no. Um, as a translator, that is not your job. It's I cannot make Ramayana gender equal. The Amish can do that. You know, Neelakantan can do that. Kavita Kani can do that because they're retelling. But as a translator, your first promise is to the text itself. Yeah, and I, uh, that that is the most important contract you have. It's not with the publisher. It's not with anything. It's It's with this text that... You have decided to uh, to work on, you know, so you just follow your politics. But what happens is every translator gets an introduction and that's where you say what you want to say. And you talk about, you know, translating against the grain or whatever you want to say. That That is where you speak in your own voice. Is it frustrating not to be able to? I know you said you did end up putting a bit of yourself, but yeah. is it frustrating not to be able to, you know put more of yourself no, in the text. No, no. Um, and we also read that you, you're not interested in retelling it. Why is it I'm so? I'm not interested in it. Other people are retelling it. I think it's very, I, I think the problem really is that um, we don't know our stories as they are. We only know versions of them. You know, this one said like that, that one said like that, which is great. Which, and it's not great, it's fine. But how will we know the radical changes or the subversions or the interventions that retailers have made unless we know what the original is. So your your politics is not radical. You're not subverting anything. If I don't know what the original is, how do I know what what is what the foundation? Yeah. yeah. And That's the really good is, way of saying Yeah, that. and honestly, honestly, if you read Ramayana, well both of you have read my translation, of course. Um, it's an amazing story. It is unbelievably beautiful. The language is, you know, still, honestly, when when I look at the moon, I can only think of what Valmiki says. You know, when I when in the monsoon, I think of the way Rama expresses his, his loneliness, his sadness that Sita's not there. I haven't found more evocative descriptions of those things. So, uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's it's gorgeous. It, it, it's yeah. It must feel so great to be in love with this just one body of work. It's just we find it fascinating. Oh, man, sometimes <laughs> I think I really lack imagination. You know that this one, te- but also it's true that 
every time I think I'm done with Ramayana, as now, literally in this moment, because I'm just about done with the new book and I'm like, Acha bas, finished. I've got nothing left to say. And, and then I panic because if I've only done this one thing and it's now I'm done, what am I going to do? With the rest of my life, I, it really worries me. And then slowly, but slowly, but slowly, some little worm will start and one more Ramayana book will come out. So I'm hoping, yeah. I'm hoping that that will, um, that, you know, Ramayana loves me as much as I love it and it will give me something new to say. So, yeah. And you also mentioned, you know, that um, these classics should be translated every 20 yeah. years yeah. to reflect, yeah. you know, the contemporary nature of our language. So yeah. why do you think that? Because I know that um, when I read translations from even the early 20th century, they sound a bit archaic to me. Um, also, of course, translations from the early 20th century were only by men. That's you true. know, <laughs> and um, that is what it is. Uh, and I, I, I do think, I think that men and women occupy the world differently. They see it differently. And so, therefore, they will read and write differently. Um, so, for that's one reason. Language must always remain current um, and contemporary. But what is happening now, uh, well, is that less and less people are actually learning Sanskrit. So the chances of our getting more translations is diminishing. We're going to get more and more retellings. That's interesting. But, yeah, but Bibek de Broy has just published a translation of Valmiki Ramayana, the critical edition, and mine is abridged and his is complete. So... It's exactly 20 years, 25 years after Maya Ramayana. So it's, it's appropriate that, um, it, that it's, it's been published. So yeah. how long did it take you to actually translate the Ramayana? Two years. Oh, I wow. A, that's actually... I, <laughs> really? That's <laughs> <much now. laughs> you no, must be so productive. No, no, I'm very... Um, I realize, I guess I'm a bit like obsessive. Um, it only shows up in translation. Everything else I'm like... Of incorrigibly lazy. So, what lazy. is your writing routine? Do you have a target that you have to hit, no, or do you have a number no, of hours a day? I I work very hard. Actually, um, I work about six hours a day. Um, and some of them, some of those six hours are just brilliant, and some of those six hours are just like oh god. But also, um, there's nothing that I enjoy more than translating. Really, okay, swimming. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. But I find both those things immersive, literally, you know, and very comforting and relaxing and all that. But it's also true uh, with translation um, that it sort of comes in bursts, you know, like I'll have two weeks where I'm just like on it and it's smooth and it's easy and everything's just right. And then suddenly it dries up, you know, you're looking at a page and you're like, oh, God. So how do you deal with that? The writer's block? I do something else. I cook. Madly. Yeah, we read yeah, that you, yeah, yeah, yeah coke, yeah, you know, yeah, go yeah. to the theater, oh, man. all that. This, um, this last couple of weeks, I've had real trouble wrapping up the book. And so, I, there's jams and jellies and wow, bread. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I'm thinking, okay, let, what is more complicated? Maybe I should just like, you know, cure some beef or like something. <laughs> something that takes a really long time. So, yeah. so, was this book very different to do than the others, the recent one? No, it's sort of in the same vein as Lost Loves and, and Uttara, which is, it's essentially a commentary on the Ramayana or certain aspects of the Ramayana. So it has those blocks of translation and then it has these discursive essays around it. I, I enjoyed that. I, I, um, yeah, and I think it, it helps me to keep my 
academic brain in place. You know, I'm not quite ready. To, I, I haven't. I, it's been 30 years since I got my PhD and uh, left academia, as it were. Uh, but it never goes away, you know. It's, and are uh, you are you planning to write fiction anytime? Oh God, no, never. I don't have the courage. <laughs> I don't have the courage. I, I think that fiction people who write fiction are inordinately brave. You're revealing yourself so completely. You know, I love that I'm hidden behind somebody else's void. <laughs> it's not me. It's Valmiki. No, no, no. All that is yeah. No, I am. Um, yeah, I I think when I was younger, when I was uh, when I was when I first thought I'd be a writer, when I was ten or twelve or six or whatever it was. I, I, of course, at that age, you only know fiction, you know, so you imagine that is the only kind of writing that one can do. That's true. Yeah, but no, I... I um, so much more than that. Yeah, I think. <laughs> and you also mentioned that your favorite characters are Lakshman and Hanuman. So who are your uh, favorite female characters? In Ramayana? Yes, you really want to know. Oh, God. Um, Anyone. I don't really like any of them. Oh, no. Oh. But I'm very frustrated by your portray. love for Sita. <laughs> we think she deserves a spotlight. Oh, she does, absolutely. That's why. She, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I have a lot of respect for Sita and what she does um, and how she does it in the circumstances in which she finds herself. I'm not sure she'd be my friend, though, you know? I don't know. I like that way. I never thought of thinking of characters like that. Would they be my friend? Yeah, exactly. Lakshmana, I think I would be in love with <laughs> Yeah, I, I find him so honorable and so moving. In fact, the new book has a whole chapter on him. I, I like that chapter a lot. Wow, yeah. we're looking and, forward. Yeah. And yeah. also we found it really fascinating that uh, the Lakshman Rekha, that whole anecdote, is not actually in the real Yeah, novel. It's not in Valmiki, it's not in the Sanskrit text. It comes much, much, much later. I, I mean, the from the people that I've asked, I believe... Um, that is not in Tamil Ramayana either. So the Tamil Ramayana is the first one after Valmiki, and it's about 1,200 years later. But even in that, there is no Lakshman Rekha. It comes after Tulsi. It comes after the 16th century. Yeah. Um, and so we also, we read in an interview that you said that, you know, the more different, the, the more versions there are and the more retellings there are of the Ramayana, the better. Why do you think that is? Because I don't think anything should have a single narrative. Even like what's happening in our country today, you know, that we are being forced into a single narrative of history, of citizenship, you know, of belonging. That's always bad. That is always, always bad. And also, I think the more Ramayanas we have, the more likely it is that each of us will find something in Ramayana that is speaking to us, that relates to us, or that we love. And it's a great text. I mean, it should really be, more people should love it, you know. And I understand that because it's, uh, you know, been handed down to us primarily by the patriarchy, we resist it. And for very good reasons, uh, because it's been given to us by the patriarchy. So we have to look at it ourselves. We have to see. I, I bet when you read it, you all were surprised. I mean, no. Ram is, as you as you have also said yeah. before, Ram is portrayed as an ideal man, but yeah. he yeah. is not. Right. And there's so many questions that come up because of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and you and you also write for children, which you found <sighs> very interesting that, you know, you kept the uncomfortable bits. So did you have that conflict that, you know, what what is what should be kept and what should be removed? Not at all. Oh. Not at all. In um, Ramayana, not for a minute. It was uh, very easy to write. Uh, I'm doing Mahabharata now for children. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder. Well, also because the I think story it's more is more complex, yeah, more yeah, characters, much more. But with you know, there were a couple of really interesting things that 
went on when I was doing the children's Ramayana. Of course, I did it, you know, and then you get all these interviews and then sometimes you speak in public and, you know, people uh, ask you questions. And um, one of the things that was a, a sort of frequent and consistent question from parents, of course, was like, what is your message? No, no, I don't have a message. <laughs> You know, like I'm a moral like, lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you teach your children morals. It's not my job, you know. And honestly, you don't want the morals I'm teaching your children. So better <laughs> you do it yourself, right? And the other, uh, you know, but my more um, civilized response was, um, you know, why do we assume that children have to be taught something in literature? Why do we assume that reading for pleasure is an adult prerogative or privilege? No, children should read for pleasure. And children are very smart, yeah? They will... Um, they will figure out who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. All that will we don't we don't need we indicators. Don't have a spoon feed. We yeah. certainly don't need indicators for that. And the other thing also, very sweet. Recently, an older gentleman said, "Oh, you know, I like your Ramayana very much because you write for the child in every adult." And I was like, "You know, sir, actually, I write for the adult in every child because children are. Why do we patronize them? You know, that's they, true." There's no, and I mean, the, the one thing that when you write for children that you do have to keep in mind is you have to use a smaller vocabulary, right? Which is fun that you don't get to use every single word that comes into your head. It's a head. constraint. It is. It's a fun constraint. But then also, I think, and just remembering from my from my own time as a young reader, which was so long ago, <laughs> uh, I loved big words. You know, so every now and then you must throw a big word into the sentence. The discovery sentence. of yeah. a big word the is big so word. fun. Yes, isn't it? With many syllables and, you know, it looks different mm. on the page. Even I would keep a list and, you know, write down exactly, the meanings. Of exactly. Them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's that. You can always throw that in. Um, but, yeah, the, the moral stuff, I think kids are... If you live in a family that are moral, your children will develop a moral compass and they will be able to see... But, you know, maybe some families don't live moral lives um, in this world. You know, there's so much cheating and lying and corruption and, you know, hatred and bullying and all this. Um, I mean, you just, you know, you, you, think, uh, you think about driving in Bombay, right? And, the, you know, the way people in cars will talk to people who are pedestrians or the way people in cars will... No, of course, they don't talk to policemen like that. Policemen will just find them. But if children are watching that, they are already becoming aware of class and caste and status and privilege and how to talk to other people. That, to me, is immoral. And maybe those are the parents who want me to tell their children how to be good. And that's not my job, you know. That so, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we also really love the fact that you promote so many aspiring writers through Sangam House. So could you tell us about that? Um, you know, how, how did the idea come about and what's well, the journey been like? Sangam House. <laughs> um, so in 2007, I had an opportunity to go to um, writer's residency uh, in upstate New York. It was the first time ever that I'd been to a residency. And it was very simple. Um, you apply, you get selected, and then you bring yourself there. Um, and then you, uh, you know, I was there for three weeks and board and lodge and everything. So, um, and that year, I'd made enough money that I could, you know, pay for a ticket to America quite easily. And of course, because I studied in America, I have so many friends. It's like, you know, my second home, another another country. So once I get there, you know, everybody takes care of me. So I knew, I knew that it was possible for me to do this. And I was sitting there, it was one of those 
glorious spring days and I was looking out over the rolling hills, the Catskills and, you know, all this. And um, you know how America looks in the springtime, right? It's just irresistible. And I thought, my God, I'm so lucky uh, that I can do this. Um, and then I thought about, um, you know, uh, fellow uh, writers in India who, um, you know, 2007, the internet was not as um, ubiquitous as it is now. There really was something called the digital divide. So I said, what if you don't have the information that these kinds of places exist? Now, what if you do have the information, you just don't have the money? You know, to you, those days it was 50,000 rupees, yeah, round trip to America. Um, what if you don't have friends? Um, and the time and space to write. Exactly. So why don't we do this in India? And so the, there was the, the young man who was running um, Ledig House, it was called then. Now it's called Writers Oh My. Um, I said to him, I said, you know, we should do this in India. And he was like, yeah. And that's exactly what it was. So, and the, um, uh, yeah, I, we've just finished 12 years. I, I, I can't believe that, you know, Sangam House is 12 years old. And so what we do is we raise money every year. Uh, and I mean, in the sense that we've had um, private donors primarily who've been with us right from the beginning. So, but every year we get one more or, you know, uh, nobody has left us, which is amazing. Um, so then we know how many writers we can take. So we take half from outside the country. Um, and the Indians that we take half write in English and half write in other other Indian languages um, because it's... it's, um, it's And how many applications do you get? Oh year? man, last year we got 120, <laughs> which is huge. And then you choose... 16. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Is there any interesting anecdote that you can share with us? Like, you know, a writer has told you about their experience at Sangam <laughs> <No>. and... No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Well, I'm sure it changes their lives. Like, well, you know, uh, they are they are so gracious when they write about Sangam House. Um, they, you know, they... I feel very lucky that, you know, those of us that run Sangam House get the benefit of their good vibes. They're, they just love it and... So they write fondly of it. But, you know, it is a very special place. I, I have to say that. Because one of the things that we insist upon is you have to meet every night at dinner time, right? So you can't, you can't just sit in your room for the three weeks that you're there, four weeks that you're there. You must engage with your colleagues. Um, and so we, um, you know, friendships are made like that. Builds and, a community. Of yeah, writers. and conversation literally is everything from I hate fish to like, you know, I'm really struggling with the word for pomegranate <laughs> in my own language or whatever it is. So there are literary conversations. There are very, very personal conversations. So it it's amazing how firm those friendships are. So something something really does happen in Sangam House. Um, yeah. And, and since you judge so many literary prizes, like we were wondering, how do you pick the best of the best? Because once a book is published, you know, it's good anyway. And then, yeah. you know. Well, the one very important thing to remember about a literary prize is that you're only judging it from its own lot, as it were. So it's not the Nobel. You know, it's like this year, this is the best book in X category or Y category or, you know, whatever. But it must be very difficult because they no, all really are really easy. good. No, it's really, really easy. It is surprisingly, really? yeah. Well, the short list is really, really easy because you know which are the best three or the best five. Long lists are harder because you really battle it out with your colleagues because if you're choosing 10 books, 
you know, the first five, mainly there's agreement. But the next five, somebody likes this, somebody likes that, somebody likes the other. And sometimes, sometimes picking the winner is very difficult. And other times that. it's just like, oh my God, there's no question. So what is that one thing in a book that, you know, that in your head, it's like it's a clear winner? What do you... For me, and of course, um, that's also why I think it's really important to be part of a jury and not a single judge because um, you might like a book and somebody else. So when a book is actually appealing to three or four people or five people who come from very different um, backgrounds and who have very different expectations from from books, um, then you know that, okay, this is this is a book that needs to be taken seriously. For me, it sounds really simplistic, but for me, it's always first story. And in that sense, that makes me a very conservative story reader. And, so story and first and then the way that it's written or then the technique the language, or the yeah. experimentation. Or. I think they have to go together. Uh, I, I don't think, I mean, it's rare that um, on a jury you'll say, well, I like the story, but it's not well written. You don't hear that coming out of a lot of jury mouths, you know. It's somehow it, it, it um, they fold into each other. Um, but for uh, for colleagues um, that I've had, for some people, politics is the most important. What are the politics of the book? Yeah, we um, read it that, you know, for you, it doesn't matter if it's a topical yeah, subject. Yeah, yeah, it was really yeah, enlightening. Actually, yeah, like we yeah. relate to that a lot because, I mean, like that's why we read. We read for the story. Exactly. exactly. It doesn't exactly. matter if yeah. it's topical. Some people will um, necessarily give more points to books from marginalized languages or marginalized communities or voices that are not so often heard. And that's, I think that for me, at that level of judging, it has to be literary merit. But, you know, there's an equally persuasive argument that this is how we break the canon, by forcing diversity into our top three and our top five. It and this must is, be difficult. It depends yeah. how you see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but we do we do need to get more voices and different voices published. And if Dalit writers and women writers and or keep winning, then the market is going to open up for these books. 100%. So there is that. That's true. Yeah. The more exposure, the more opportunities. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what prompted you to write Lost Loves so many years after you translated the Ramayana? And could you tell our listeners a little bit about the book? It's my favorite book. I think if I never write anything again, I'll still die happy because I love Lost Loves. I wow. really do. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever write anything that has, gives me as much pleasure again. So uh, this Ramayana now, you know, um, this translation of the Ramayana, everybody thinks it's fantastic and it's everywhere and, you know, people talk about it. It's been 20 years, 20, 24 years since it's been published. So that's that's a very long life um, for a book. Um, but when it first came out, um, it just sank like a stone. Um, it got one review. Which really? Not, yeah, which was not terribly favorable. It was in the Hindu. I, I can't remember who wrote it. How I did mean, you deal with it? I was really crushed. I thought I'd done a terrible, terrible job of uh, translating the book. And I thought, okay, I'll just pretend it never happened, you know. And so I honestly, honestly just put the book on my shelf and said, fine, this is a part of my life. I, I can just, I, you know, I was 36 at the time, right? So at 36, you can do these things. Yeah? yeah it's a second chance. Now, if it happened to me now, I think I would be much more uh, upset. So that was in 97. And then I got a, uh, I was teaching at uh, Mahindra College. And so that was a very, 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 very full-time job. So that whatever disappointment and discomfort I felt about Ramana, it, it went away very, very quickly. 
And then then we left Mahindra College in 2002. So that's five years after the book came out. And then slowly, as people would write to me and say, oh, I've read your Ramayana, I love it. And I would say, oh, that's that's nice. And then I, I got a, a teaching gig with one of these study abroad programs from a small Midwestern college. And I taught Ramayana, my own Ramayana. And, and that's actually when I read it again. So for whatever those seven years... It was like, you know, Vanvas. I was, this is not my book kind of thing. And, and when I read it to teach, I thought, wow, man, this is actually not bad. I, this is not something that I need to be embarrassed about. And then when I started reading it, I read it differently. I didn't read it to translate, obviously. I was that much older. You had a different perspective. I did. And mainly what happened with Lost Loves was um, I became very, very aware of being a feminist and reading a text like that or working on a text like that. And to my great surprise, I felt that, especially as a feminist, I could not dismiss Rama. The book is called Ramayana. Yeah, so if you're going to do it, then you have to take Rama on. Otherwise, 75% of the book you're not interested in. Um, So I said, okay, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it to see who Rama is. And then that's sort of where Lost Loves came from. And I mean, Lost Loves is a, is a surprising book in that everybody who reads it loves it, right? And Sanjay, my husband, he said, what kind of book is this everybody loves? Right? <laughs> Left wing likes it, light wing likes it, BJP likes it, conservative likes it, feminist likes it. What kind of book is this? It's very tough to please all yeah, readers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think everybody is, is so... The surprise of Lost Loves is that you can be persuaded to feel sympathetic towards Rama. It's not that you necessarily like him or you agree with what he does. On the contrary, you continue to disagree with many of the things he does, but you see why. Yeah, that's the thing that you understand. I, I yeah. mean, when, when I read, from, yeah, yeah. Um, you understand sort of his actions and why, yeah. you know, it must have been said or written in the way that it is. So that was very yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, Arsha, do you have any advice for those who want to translate? Like, you know, those who have, who want to begin, but then, you know, they have hesitations. I think I wish more people would translate. I really do wish more people would translate because, um, it, it's just the most satisfying thing I can think of, yeah. Having said that, everybody is not instinctively a translator. I think the most important thing about any kind of writing, uh, and I think translation is writing, is you have to read. You can't write if you don't read. You absolutely cannot write if you don't read. You need a big vocabulary. You need, uh, especially for translation, you need to have nuance. You need to know the difference between denotation and connotation. And, you know, I mean, this sounds like it's all technical, but it's not. You know, when do you you say he ran? When can you reasonably say he charged? When can you say he, you know, I don't know, pelted down the road? I think it's just being in love with words. I love thinking about things like this. It just gets me so excited, you know. We're all word nerds. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, totally. uh, yeah, Yeah. No, but that that's really it, that you must, in your head, um, have many, many options. And the other thing, of course, uh, you know, um, I think people, translators too, can get very egotistical about what's in their heads. But you know, a dictionary, dictionaries were made for people like you. And thesaurus, I hate to say this, but, um, th- you know, at least three times for each book I've gone to the thesaurus. Yeah which isn't a lot, but it's just there. And 
always, always, it's after a battle with my ego. You know, because I'm like, oh, I can't think of another word for this. I can't think of another word for this. I'm like, use the thesaurus, donkey. And and it's not necessarily that you, you pick a word that's available to you, but it makes you think in a different way. So eventually you will come up with a word that you're that happy fits. with. Yeah, yeah. So I love that perspective. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay, so rapid now we fire. have a short, rapid, oh. rapid fire session. All right. Which one of you is Karan Jawad? Both of us. <laughs> <laughs> Two currents. Oh my God. So, Arsha, the translator, Arsha, the writer. Translator. The last book that you read for pleasure. Oh God, I've already forgotten its name. <laughs> I just read uh, Edna O'Brien, uh, Little Red Chairs. Yeah. So, uh, one of our questions is, will you ever translate the Mahabharata? But then you already told us that you did. Well, I'm not strictly translating it. I'm retelling it for children. Yeah. But I, I started translating Mahabharata years ago, right after Ramayana. I just never finished it because at the time I had a full-time job and, you know, and now, you know, other people have occupied that space. And But, of course, there's always place for another translation. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Okay. One retelling which you absolutely loved. Oh, um, I have recently really, really enjoyed the retellings of Greek myth. Yeah. So Song of Achilles. Um, I love that. Yeah. 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 And I'm just reading um, um, Colm Toybin's Oh, God, it's got names in the title. Um, and it's Clytemnestra and Iphigenia and all of that. So I, I um, there's something very, very literary about the way Greek myths are being retold. And I'm, I enjoy that hugely. You know, but of course, it's easier to retell those myths because they're not religious anymore. So you have a greater freedom. But it's great writers who are retelling these stories rather than, you know, what's happening in Any India. Any recommendations? That, uh, uh, for the for the Greek myths, um, yeah, there's Penelopead by um, Margaret Atwood. Thank you. Which is not my favorite, I have to say, uh, but still, it's there. Um, I can't remember the names of books anymore. You know, I read Silence of the Girls by oh, I think Silence Pat Barker, which I that's loved. That's it. I loved Pat Barker's Silence of the Girls. Yes. I haven't read it. That's, that yes, was great. Yes, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. So, yeah. if you could go back in time and work on another book apart from the Ramayana, what would it oh, be? Oh, Mahabharata, without doubt. Yeah. Or perhaps, um, perhaps the the Iliad or the Odyssey. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm turning sixty this year, and I I have made a promise to myself. I need a new book. So maybe I need a new language. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we, we really want, wanted to ask you about know. that. Did you ever? <laughs> if not Sanskrit, yeah. Greek, or, Greek for sure. Hundred wow. so percent. So much but left to maybe, explore. Maybe, maybe, maybe Farsi. I'm thinking about maybe learning Farsi. Wow. So I'm not going to do it. This is just a night. No, I want to do it. I really want to switch to something else. Now, yeah, okay. So. See, this is not a rapid fire. But then, you know, how do you do so much? Honestly, how I do don't you? do anything. <laughs> I only read a night. That's the energy. All. No, like no, that's anybody can do it. Yeah. Well, I love what I do. Very inspiring. So. Oh, thank you. Really? <laughs> you should see me in my own home. <laughs> no, we were just discussing like if we could if we could even be like a little productive like, you know, you are it would be great. Look so, at how much you do the two of you. It's amazing. I mean, like too you know, kind. Well, you're you're <laughs> no, your agents, you're doing uh, podcasts, you're like supporting a literary community. That's uh, that takes a lot. Means Many a lot. balls in the air. <laughs> thank, you know? you. thank you. So, yeah. Sorry, I failed your rapid fire (laughs) by slowing it down. So thank you for speaking to us, Arsha. We learned so much about your process and hopefully, you know, we might be a little more productive now on. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I I'm really honored and I enjoyed our conversation hugely. So thank you both. Thank you. Wow, what a conversation. Arsha is so inspiring. I think I want to be like Arsha when I grow up. <laughs> yeah. On our next episode, we'll be talking to another inspiring personality, Dipanjana Pal. She's a versatile writer and she's written this chilling crime thriller, Hushabye Baby, and she's also a well-known journalist. So do not miss it, guys. We are at Bound India on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So please do share your thoughts about the episodes. We would love to hear them.